0: Hello and welcome back to Conflicts of Interest, Swiss Peace Academic Podcast dedicated to research in peace and conflict. The idea is simple. You probably work or study in these fields and you've got lots of books you'd love to read but you ain't got time. So we deliver that to you. We on a regularly basis carefully select a book that's been published in the field in the past two years and we come together in this podcast with the author to discuss it and so hopefully you'll get the core argument you'll be interested and you'll go ahead and buy and read it I am Dr. Leandra Baez, Swiss Peace Gender Advisor and Senior Researcher, and for this second episode, I have the huge pleasure to welcome Isabella Steflia, Assistant Professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in the Department of Political Science in Ontario, Canada, and Jessica Trisco-Darden, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in the US. And together, they wrote the book on... Women as War Criminals, Gender, Agency and Justice, which is just off from Stanford Uni Press. And it tells a fascinating story, namely that female perpetrators are actually a lot more common than what we think, but they fall through the legal net. They either don't face trial or when they do, they often manage to use gender narratives to get lower sentences and better conditions. And so... I am very much looking forward to discussing this with you and on what we are missing when we don't take female perpetrators seriously and why our societies and legal systems still struggle with them. Isabella and Jessica, welcome. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here, Leandra.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: So to start us off, we have our future that we call the news anchor and what we'd like you to do here is to answer just one question when did current events last make you think about your book and why so isabella you can start yes yeah, so Very recently, um, actually,
2: this is still going on today, um, Catholic nuns and Queen Elizabeth have been in the news in Canada um, and internationally. So Canada has been in the news for this discovery of over 1,000 unmarked graves at former residential school sites. Um, And just to give you a bit of context, over the course of a century, at least 150,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families and taken to residential. Schools. Most of these schools were run by the Catholic Church. And the purpose was to force them into assimilation into Canadian culture. And uh, some would argue um, this was also part of the colonial security policy against the First Nations. So this um, uh, you know, these events are not only cultural genocides, but recently there have been many calls about thinking about these events as crimes of um, actual violence, right? Crimes of aggression, genocide, crimes against humanity. So direct violence um, against the children because many of the children were not only neglected, but there are also stories of um, rape, impregnation, forced abortion, and violence against the children. So there's been a um, sort of desperate need um, to hold someone accountable. And uh, the media has been all over this. A lot of groups have been protesting. And, and you know, out of the sort of possibilities of who to um, hold accountable, there's the government, but there's also the British monarchy, and there's the Catholic Church. And, you know, it's been very interesting for me to see women surface as the individuals representing those institutions, um, in particular, the British monarchy, and also nuns, Catholic nuns. Um, So we, we, you know, we've had um, the statues of Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria toppled by protesters and defaced in Canada. And um, also a lot of stories have emerged of nuns and nurses at these residential schools committing violence against the children. So stories of nuns and nurses um, abusing and neglecting the children um, are surfacing continuously. So for me, this was a another opportunity to rethink about what does the face of the perpetrator look like, right? I think there is resistance in our society to think about nurses and nuns as violent and capable of atrocities, um, even though we know that this is not a new phenomenon. We, we wrote in our book about violent nurses um, and, and guards and secretaries as part of the Nazi crimes. And we also wrote about Catholic nuns um, participating in the violence and in genocide in Rwanda and helping in its organization as well. So, um, you know, I think this sort of was very applicable to our topic for me, especially considering that I just moved to Canada on the 30th, so just a few days ago. And I also think that when people think about Queen Elizabeth, you know, they prefer to think about the television show, The Crown, um, rather than think about the violence of colonialism. I think that we've normalized thinking about um, monarchs like King Leopold as the violent ones, but we sort of refuse to face that um, there are living individuals who have participated in the systems uh, and enabled the systems um, of violence that continue in Canada today against the First Nations.
0: So that's sort of you know, my little in-the-news spiel. Fantastic. And indeed, so very topical. And just as you were talking, I I did think exactly of that passage in the book where you do refer to, to the nurses in the Nazi regime, right? And I mean, we're still commemorating Seventy-five years of the since the Nuremberg trials, and most of us will have seen um, the famous pictures from from the courtroom. But one of the things we rarely discuss it's it's all men, right, on on both sides, defendants and um, judges. And so, the, just a, a general question to st- start off, um, since we know that women did participate way more actively in the Holocaust, rather than just as camp guards. Why is it that they, but also women more generally, rarely become accused of war crimes?
1: I think it's a question of uh, lack of imagination on prosecutors' parts. Uh, I think that individuals who exist in a certain society or certain historical moment, right, largely accept the gender norms of that time. Uh, And in particular, Nazi ideology and the Nazi regime propagated a gender ideology that saw women as protectors of the home and really empowered women in that particular role. You had to become the ideal wife, the ideal mother. You had to give birth to the genetically ideal type of human that the Nazi regime was designed to create. But because so much emphasis was placed on women's roles within the home and within the family, it eclipsed their roles in German society and the propagation of the Holocaust more generally. So women um, joined the Nazi party. They were active members of this political organization. Women volunteered to serve on the Eastern Front uh, as Nazi Germany moved into Eastern Europe. Women dedicated themselves to this ideological project. But they were seen, um, because of the dominant gender ideology of the time, as less crucial players, right? The men were making decisions, the men were seen as a leadership. But in fact, women were playing vital roles in those decisions. Women were writing up the lists of prisoners or the lists of um, detainees to be executed on any given day, right? They had clear and important bureaucratic roles that led to the deaths of millions of individuals. And so it's only now uh, in the 2000s and, and really in the current moment that we're seeing women's culpability be taken seriously. And unfortunately, many of the women who were implicated in the crimes of the Holocaust are now in their 90s. And so it's very, very difficult to achieve justice. But at least this recognition of women's roles is occurring.
0: Indeed. And that is what your book traces, right? Um, just to perhaps give our listeners an overview, you the, the book is structured around four women, um, three of which actually did get um, convicted for war crimes and one who still stands accused. So we have the... It starts with the co-president of Republika Srpska, Biljana Plavšić. You then move on to Rwanda's former minister of family and women's development, Pauline Masuhuku. and then you also have a shift in time. You go to the the early 2000s and, and contemporary time with the female U.S. soldier, Lindy England, and the student, Hoda Mutana, who left the U.S. Um, to join ISIS. So and together, you say you you chose them also because they span really quite representative cases of uh, female perpetrators. And you take us also through some of the most important recent violent conflicts. And what I'd like you to do now for our listeners is to explain to them, you structured the book also around these figures but also through the conceptual lens of mother, whore, monster. These are the lenses through which these women were looked at and evaluated based on. Can you explain to us what that conceptual framework is?
1: I think the cases that we've selected also mirror the kind of evolution of international law and law around war crimes more generally. So there wasn't um, any notion of war crimes as such really prior to World War II. We had kind of the Geneva Conventions and things like this that governed uh, the relationship between soldiers but not between soldiers and civilians. And and that body of law really only develops in the wake of the Second World War. But it only comes to uh, fully encompass what we now think of as crimes against humanity uh, in the 1990s. And so part of our, our book's trajectory is the story of the continual evolution of international law. But it also situates uh, women's framing within that body of law and also within media reporting. And so these frames, which you just referenced, were developed by Karen Gentry and Laura Schoberg um, to really focus on kind of archetypal descriptions of women. And so, for instance, I just mentioned uh, in Nazi ideology, women were placed in this very familial, motherly role. Individuals who couldn't live up to that, who couldn't fulfill this ideal mother, uh, were then cast as transgressive, right? So we know, for instance, that the Nazi regime also targeted homosexuals uh, and those who didn't fit into kind of clear-cut categories uh, within their, their system. But we also have uh, this idea that women who are unable to fulfill these roles somehow become monstrous, right? They, they become deviant in a way that cannot be recognized as placing them in the same category. Uh, similarly, we have the archetype of the whore as someone who has kind of sexual power or sexual tendencies that can't be constrained and that leads them to acts of violence. And so we use these three frames, and in particular, how the media um, and actors within the court, both the prosecution and the defense, apply these frames to craft narratives about these women. So we have legal narratives that are argued uh, in the courtroom and in legal filings, and we have media narratives. And sometimes those narratives overlap, and sometimes they don't. And so uh, what we spend a lot of time in the book doing is kind of teasing out how these narratives are generated um, and the ways in which they both benefit and harm particular female defendants accused of war crimes. And perhaps Isabella can go into greater detail in one of our cases uh, describing how we apply these frames.
2: Yes, I'd love to add. So we expand on Gentry and Stoburg's, um analytical approach by sort of looking at um, when is it that a female defendant can successfully use the stereotype of the mother to get a defense and, um, you know, a resolution to the trial that's in her favor. And when is that not the case? And she ends up being portrayed as the monster and she ends up being given a sentence as a monster would be, right? An exceptional sentence. So, in doing that, we find Intricacies between important identities, such as how race and religion may influence um, whether a female defendant is able to portray herself as a mother of the nation. Um, Which was the case of Birna Plavšić, who very successfully um, was able to create this narrative around herself um, and uh, obviously with her um, legal defense, create this narrative that she is the mother of the Serbs, mother of the Serb nation, who is... um, figure that leads her nation, um, that believes in national unity and believes in, um, is, is, is peaceful and a pious woman, right? So she, in fact, dressed herself in particular ways, wore a cross to trial um, and was very successful at having this um, stereotype work in her favor, even though she was actually not a biological mother. She had no children of her own, right? Whereas in the case of Pauline Shuhuko, the Rwandan case where she tries to use the same defense and it's not accepted. Um, she is tried along other men in the Butare um, trial and sort of, she's treated just like one of them. And in fact, her gender, her, her figure as a mother is somewhat ignored or used to show that she's a monster because how could a mother commit such horrendous crimes, right? So um, it can work. You know, motherhood is a double-edged sword in court. Um, and we find um, a similar thing for Lindy England, who was um, our, our third case, and and she's also a mother, but she ends up being in many ways punished for um for having a child and and becoming pregnant while in the military, so that was sort of not something that made her be seen as naturally more innocent, more peaceful, more nurturing, uh, more likely to be remorseful, which is what what happened with Plavšić, right? So. We have these different frames, but they don't necessarily work out in the same way um, in each case. And that depends on the various identities of these women, whether they're white or black, whether they're military women or not. Um, But also on the political situation, depends on the political situation at the moment and um, sort of what the political pressure is, what kind of outcome is expected from the different trials and I think that's something that we have to take into account as well.
0: Yes absolutely and I, I do want, I mean we don't have the time to and com- to cover all the four cases but let's at least zoom into one or two and so in the chapter on Plavsic right, perhaps first um, tell our listeners a bit more who she was, what she was accused of. And also you've mentioned her her attire, but um, also the narrative of being mother of Serb that helped her to strip her of responsibility for the crimes she committed. So in her case, it worked out quite well. She got also lower sentences than, than male peers, even though she was uh, higher ranked. So yeah, can you tell us a bit more about the the character of Plavchich and how she how she used the narrative. And in particular, what I found striking is how also very high profile witnesses like Samantha Power bought into that and even the prosecutor Carla Del Ponte. So Please expand. I can absolutely do that. So Birina Plavšić um, was the co-president of Republika
2: Srpska in Bosnia and Herzegovina. She was a co-president with Radovan Karadzic, um, who also was on trial. And this is what actually sparked the interest in writing a book about this, because I was um, paying attention to Karadzic's trial and Karadzic got a 40-year sentence, which was then increased to life upon appeal. Whereas Birina Plavšić, um got a very short sentence. She only served two thirds of it and is still living in Belgrade um, today as we speak. So it was really fascinating to look at how these two figures who shared the same Political position ended up having very different trials. Also, Karadzic was extremely hostile during the trial, insulting the international community, not recognizing the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia um, as a legitimate institution of justice. Whereas Plavsic was, in fact, very um, cooperative she was very compliant her lawyer emphasized continuously that she would comply with orders of the trial but to back up um a little bit about her you know she she has a phd in botany um she is very well educated she was quite influential even before she became a political leader and um she um, even traveled to the West and had a Fulbright, had written uh, numerous academic articles, right? So she was held in very high regard. And then um, during her political career, she would make extremely racist and derogatory remarks about Bosnian Muslims, um, suggesting that they are somehow naturally and biologically inferior to Serb's So, you know, she was a woman that people listened to because of her education and position, but she managed to plead guilty to only one crime, and um, that was a crime of Ethnic cleansing, and she even brushed that one off. Sort of, she suggested that, well, you know, ethnic cleansing has been done in this region, in the Balkans, since the beginning of times. So that's not so sure she can plead guilty to that, right? Um, And then proceeded to have a very strategic defense um, during her trial where. like you said, she had high profile uh, witnesses like Madeleine Albright uh, speak about her humanitarian interests, speak about how she was different from Karajits and other political leaders. Um, and, um, you know, she complied, appeared very remorseful, although she never even apologized. She never really, even her guilty plea, um, you know, is very short. And then the the tribunal published a news release that was very long about it, but those were not her own words. So, however, this seemed to be very successful for her. Um, But we know that it was strategic because during um, her um, imprisonment, she wrote two memoirs, which, you know, they were only um, written in um, Serbian Cyrillic. So, It was obvious that the intention was not to reach the international audience, not to reach the, you know, legal teams that were working at The Hague by her Serbian audience at home, where she sort of showed her true colors and um, show, continued to insult the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Um, she also, again, continued to make racist remarks, insult uh, Bosnian Muslim victims, victims of rape um, in, in, you know, extremely horrendous ways. Uh, frankly, I had to read these books and translate them for um, our book and um, you know it was it was
0: quite um, a, a difficult uh, read to be honest. Thank you so much Isabella and perhaps just briefly right because I do think it's such an important component in your book that you actually do go beyond gender right so in the in the chapter on nirama Suhuku you do say that this is the contrast we have right we have a former president, higher ranked, but she's European. And so she manages to navigate and, and use this mother narrative to her advantage. And this is contrasted with then an African minister, so lower in rank. But she is considered um, equally responsible than her peer male um, leadership in the Rwandan genocide. She's the first woman, the only woman so far, to have been um, convicted for genocide and rape as a crime against humanity. So would you mind just briefly explain this interconnectedness between gender and race in her context and also the particular political context at the time that perhaps also played into that?
2: Sure, absolutely. To point out the difference between Plavšić and Nurmashevuko, I'm I'm going to start by just pointing out the sentences. So Plavšić's sentence was 11 years, and she only served two thirds of it. Um, whereas Nurmashevuko received life. And you know, to point out the different um, political positions that these women held, one was the co-president, whereas the other one was um, minister. So we would expect that, according to rank, Plavšić would have received a higher sentence, but that is not what we see and um, you know I think one thing that's really important to point out about the political context here is that the Nirama case came at a time when um, the international community, the human rights organizations, activists were really pushing for um, the courts to recognize rape as a crime of genocide, rape as a crime against humanity. And um, Nirama Shuhuko participated in ordering rape, right? So um, I think that was really important in the decision to ignore her role as a woman, ignore any gendered element of this and to just try her as one of the group, even perhaps to punish her more because she was a woman who decided to order and encourage rape, right? So it's so here she's held to a higher standard because she's a woman. So we're used to men ordering rape and engaging in rape against women. But if there is a woman who is ordering rape against women, then she sort of is held to a higher standard and um, in that sense becomes more of an
0: example of a monster. But also because she defies a certain image, right, of the African woman. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely, right? So we have, you know, sort of, As a society, as people who work in development, in human rights, um, you know, our narratives of understanding the world depend on seeing the African woman and often put together with African children, as the ultimate victim, the ultimate victim of whether it's the African man or the Western man, right? It's sort of, uh, we like to compartmentalize the world and the evils of the world in these simple categories. And the African woman is kind of the emblem of victimhood. And Nirama Shuhuko did not fit that stereotype. So she might have been victimized in her life. It's possible, right? But nobody wanted to know about that. She did not fit into the stereotype that she needed to fit into. And as you said, she was punished for that harshly. I think that we have a long way to go when it comes to um, you know, our legal community, um, just being able to wrap their minds around an African woman being a perpetrator, being somebody who participates in the politics and the ideology and has certain political goals, You know, wants to achieve... Political um, things in, in her life, I think that that's something that we are not, um, as a society, we are we are not used to, um, and we're not we have not accepted. Um, in fact, you know, our, our work for many of us depends on continuing to portray the African women as the victim, because we need funding right? For very important initiatives. But still, there's a narrative there that continues that is not necessarily um, always uh, positive. Sometimes it's harmful. It's harmful for achieving equality, uh, gender equality, in fact.
0: Yes, and I found it interesting how, at least the way I read the book in the second part with the with the last two cases, the role of victimhood plays quite a big one. So I read it that victimhood was tried to be used to, to play in favor of uh, the US soldier England, right? So she was portrayed as So just for context, she was accused of torturing Iraqis in the infamous um, prison Abu Ghraib. But in the defense, it was often said that she wasn't really an abuser, rather she was the victim of her boyfriend, who was a higher ranked um, military specialist named Grander, right? And so I found one quote, I just want to read that out. I found that really, really telling when a sociologist who who spoke in trial in her defense said that looking at the Abu Ghraib photographs, the abuse was was, uh, kept on photographs. He continues, everyone thinks England was abusing prisoners, but really, Grainer was abusing England and that she was rather the victim of Grainer's abuse and therefore not a perpetrator and not even a co-abuser. So can you tell us a little bit more to what degree you think the victimization worked in her favor to strip her of her agency and therefore of her culpability?
1: Sure, I I think that this is a difficult question because all of this is happening within the context of the United States military as a social and political institution, right? And within that institution, individuals don't have the same degree of agency as that they do in free civilian life, right? You're part of a hierarchy, you're situated in that hierarchy, you have commanding officers and you're supposed to follow their orders largely without questioning them but you're also constrained by international uh, law right and and the conduct expected of US military personnel is extremely high i think what's important to point out um, in the case of lindy england was that she she was not an officer she was a reservist she volunteered to join the military while she was in high school to serve uh in exceptional times and a part-time capacity. Um, And so when she was activated to be deployed to Iraq, she had had no previous international travel experience. She had not had um, anything beyond her, her reserve duty basic training and kind of upkeep. And then she was suddenly thrown in this very uh, chaotic, complex environment. But so were many of her male peers. And that's what makes this argument really interesting, because uh, in the narratives that come out not only from England's trial, but from associated trials, and eventually 11 individuals were implicated in the abuses that occurred at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Um, Charles Grainer comes out as someone who was very charismatic um, and manipulative, not only of England, but of other individuals as well, um, and had intimate personal relationships, uh, again, not only with England, but other women involved uh, in the abuse as well. And yet we really only see this narrative adopted in England's case. Um, And it interacted with other kind of unique attributes of Lindy England, um, including an alleged intellectual disability, um, sensory processing disorders. And so in a sense, it was argued that her personal attributes made her more likely to be victimized. Um, And so there's this question of, was there kind of a grooming narrative, right? Was was Rainer preparing her um, to participate in these abuses? Was he coercing her, et cetera? At the end of the day, based on eyewitness testimonies, um, England showed no resistance to participating in any of these events. Um, and so whether she had you know, a passive personality, was overly compliant, as her um, defense experts argued, or whether she simply didn't have any qualms about what she was participating in, uh, it, it ultimately is impossible to determine that, right? Only England knows that for herself.
0: And I think complexity is the perfect keyword to slowly bring us to closure and to our policy window to do that. so. Based on your book, based on the research you've done, if you had two minutes, if you had to imagine yourself, you have the unique opportunity to speak to 200 policymakers in peace building, legal institutions, what would you recommend them? You have two minutes.
1: First, I would say thank you, because two minutes is a heck of a lot of time in Washington, D.C. So at least they're more generous in Europe. Um, But I would say that too often we assume that women have no agency. We know, though, that women are able and willing to commit themselves to political and ideological causes. And all of the women that we profile in this book do so, whether they are members of extreme ethno-nationalist groups, internationally recognized terrorist organizations, or political institutions like national militaries. But our efforts to kind of counter violent extremism, to prevent terrorism focus predominantly on men when identifying those at risk. And when women are considered, it's often assumed that male relatives or others with whom they have personal relationships have significant influence over them and their behaviors. So we often get narratives of, my husband made me do it. I was coerced by a male who was in command over me. But we often overlook networks amongst women that can drive radicalization. So in Huda Muttana's case, she wasn't interacting with men online. She was interacting with other women. And when she moved to Syria, she developed a very tight network of other foreign-born English-speaking women. And those individuals were producers of the propaganda uh, that she forwarded. And so I think we have to examine social networks in in a deeper manner, and in particular, to try and access some of the closed social networks that exist amongst women. I think we also need to recognize that different cultural norms empower women in different ways. And not all forms of empowerment look like what we might expect based on our own cultural or social background. And so the big policy issue really remains benevolent sexism. We have all of these norms that position women as more peaceful, as better at negotiation, as better at mediation. Um, But those are just assumptions, not proven facts, and they constrain the way we treat women. So all of our efforts to have gender mainstreaming, to get more women involved in peace and security operations are really based on this belief that women are more peaceful or at least more effective agents of peace. But having more women in conflict zones really just increases their likelihood of involvement in war crimes and wartime abuses. And we need to recognize this and plan for this uh, in order for gender mainstreaming to really have the impact that we hope.
0: But thank you for this passionate pitch. Thank you, Isabella and Jessica, for having been with us and for the fascinating discussion. If you're now intrigued, find your way to Stanford University Press and buy the book Women as War Criminals Gender Agency and justice. And thanks to you all for listening. This was delivered to you by our producers Anjali Jabarte and me, Leandra Baez. There is more from us. If you go to conflicts of interest on Spotify and soon also Apple Podcasts, you'll find our first episode on corporate peace and there will be more to follow. And to motivate us for doing so, if you like what you heard, please hit like and subscribe. Thank you.